0: Michael Yo's got his own show. Michael Yo's got his own show. If you're looking for a place to go, the only place to go is the Yo show. The only place to go is the Yo show. Tom Rhodes, how
1: are you? Great, Michael, how are you? You know what? Uh I've been we we've crossed paths. Uh, I wouldn't say even several times, like a couple times, but I see you everywhere. I, you know, I know about your long-lasting career. I know how you travel the world. I know how you've had a TV show in the past. I know how you've uh, been on pretty much everybody's radar at one time or another. And I just, no, I'm mean, serious. like, you're just a, a household name to comics. There's not one comic that doesn't know you. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, man.: Thank I you, brother. It. um How did you get started? That's what I first want to know. is
0: when and where did you get started? Um, my father's the reason I'm a stand-up comedian, and my father loved Richard Pryor. Pryor was just uh, a god to my father and to me. And my dad had Richard Pryor Records. So I grew up listening to Richard Pryor Records. My dad also was a big fan of Bob Newhart. We had Bob Newhart Records. <clears throat> but I remember being a little kid driving around with my dad and he had like prior cassettes. And I remember, you know, you didn't have to wear seatbelts back then, the kids. I don't think they even had seatbelts. There was no no (laughs) seatbelts and there was no child seat. So I remember like standing next to my dad as he drove, I would stand next to him and I'd have my arm uh, on his shoulders as he's driving. And just that feeling of my dad's shoulders shaking while he was laughing and I had my arm around him. But you know, I didn't understand the adult theme stuff of prior but when he would animate animals that like just killed me i thought he was a genius you know the 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 neighbor's dog and the you know the the cheetah in africa when he did all that stuff yeah the bear story about the bear yeah yeah. so i had this uh real tight uh connection with my father and my uncle my family's originally from washington dc and my uncle did open mic night comedy for one year in washington dc when i was 11. And my father took me to see my uncle perform. And the club was called L. Brookman's. It was the first place that did stand-up in, in D.C. It wasn't like, it had, didn't have big names. It was the first, like proper club. So the stage was next to the entrance. And the show was in progress when we walked in the door. <laughs> and I was 11 years old, and I had a Washington Redskins jacket on. And the comedian on stage pulled me on stage, and he interviewed me like I was the coach of the Redskins. Oh, and I was 11 years old, and I just gave bashful, dopey, one-word, little kid answers, yes, no. <laughs> but I'll never forget standing on that stage and seeing all those happy people with their heads thrown back in laughter and all the teeth in their mouth. And, you know, Washington, D.C. is a is a really diverse city. So I know I've romanticized it in my imagination, but, you know, there were... Black people, Asian people, Latinos, just the whole flavor of humanity. And to me, that's what, what stand-up comedy was to me. The idea of it was that when you're on the stage speaking, you're speaking to all of humanity. You know what's interesting
1: to me about stand-up comedy is when you make people laugh, like no matter what color you are, if you can make the whole room laugh at one time, it's the only time, like I I can't think of any on. The, any other industry where everyone's listening it's the only like any industry where everybody's on the same page laughing about the same thing that means they're all listening to you so your message if you whatever if it's social awareness if it's just an observation and everybody's on board they're listening and I I was thinking about all these other careers if you're a singer they're not listening they're kind of just singing your song you know they're they're waiting for their cue to sing their favorite song but in stand-up like they're Quiet.
0: The beautiful thing about stand-up, in my mind, has always been um, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity or yeah. your sexual orientation or if you're rich or poor. It only matters if you're funny. So it, it it's always seemed like it was like a great equalizer. You know, you can't buy this talent. You know, you're not – I mean, some people are born funny, but, I mean, it's really – you know, there, there's natu- – I know plenty of natural funny people who have tried stand-up and they can't do it. I mean, it's really a cultivated – art form, like learning how to paint or, or play a guitar or something and I, like I
1: And that. I say that too, what, what's great about it, it is an equalizer and you can't cheat it. Yeah. You, it takes time on the stage. Well, yeah, because I remember talking to Russell Peters and this is at the beginning of my stand up career, he goes and he called, he goes about seven or eight years into your career, you're going to shoot your first special, which I did. And he goes by your 11th year, you're going to shoot your second. And then it's going to just domino because you're going to get Because, you know, I came from Chelsea lately. I had a little bit of heat, but I got lots of stage time to grow. I didn't have to go through the three minutes, the five minutes. I started with 15, you know, just on. I was just talking about my family and things like that. And he goes, you have the opportunity because it's about stage time. A lot of people say they do stand up for 15 years. But if you look at the stage time, it's like six,
0: seven. No, it's that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing from Outliers. You know, Mm -hmm. for I mean, to do anything, you know, to be a, a master transmission repairman or a master dentist. I mean, you got to put in those 10,000 hours before you get good at it, before yeah. you master the craft. You know? and,
1: and what I love about stand-up, even actors, I talk to a lot of actors, like I talk to a lot of casting people that cast actors and they're like, if you can do stand-up, you can do anything in the industry. It's the hardest thing to do. And actors, what's great about it is they realize that too. It's the one thing they're like, yo, I could never do that shit, you know? And that's what's beautiful about it. It's this community where you're doing something. If you do it well, you're doing something not many people in the world can do, you yeah. know? So that, that's what makes it beautiful. Now, I know you travel the world a lot, but i want to talk about Las Vegas right now because we're in Vegas. What is the craziest thing that, experience you've had in Vegas? Because I'm sure you come, you've you come here a lot throughout your career.
0: Well, I have an interesting history with Las Vegas. Um, my father loved Las Vegas, and he always wanted me to, you know, oh, you should play Vegas, you should play Vegas. And, you know, my family moved from Washington, D.C. to Florida, and that's where I started doing stand-up, and then I started out on the Southern Circuits. Um, but when I was uh, 22, I moved to San Francisco, and then that's where I got really good, and that, that – seen there and just um you know Was uh, oh, that Cobs and Punchline back then and as well? And it was the improv it was and, Improv, okay. you know and it, it's always been a socially progressive city yep. and uh you know uh diverse and just vibrant and international and so that really helped me grow into the human and stand-up comedian that I am and that's that's where I got great as a comedian. So at the same time I was also very much a San Francisco snob. Mm. And I wanted nothing to do with Las Vegas. So <laughs> there was one time I'll tell you, um, I, I was never a Grateful Dead fan. And I saw them once in Oakland when I moved to San Francisco in the early nineties. <clears throat> and then somewhere in the mid nineties, they were playing in Vegas and it was an outdoor show. And I, and I was like, Hey, I want to give them another chance, you know, cause I was never really a fan mm-hmm. of them. And it was at some outdoor stadium in Vegas. And, uh, it was in July and it was in the hundreds, and um, it was it it was it, it was like it was like an endurance race. It was it's like the Iditarod or um, an Ironman competition, and uh, it, it, it was it was really brutal. And my friend and I had drove over from LA, and we thought we'd just get a hotel after the show. All the hotels were sold out, and we had to drive to like Barstow.
1: Oh yeah, to okay. find a thing. Yeah. And
0: I remember I was like completely exhausted and dehydrated and i'm driving trying to get to barstow and keep my eyes open and my friend was asleep in the car next to me and um he had done some mushrooms or something and um every once in a while he would jump up and just scream look out like we were gonna hit a truck and he did this like about 10 times (laughs) i'm like dude you need to fucking lie back and relax so we can get to barstow um I don't have any really crazy stories. A lot of the, you know, I've had so many, you know, it's funny in the, in the last 10 years, like so many great clubs have opened, you know, like I, I play the comedy Cellar, and the, the, I'm at the laugh factory this week. I love Brad Garrett's at the MGM. There's some, there's, yeah. there's, you know, and there's so many great restaurants here, but a lot of history with, with Vegas is with my father. <clears throat> my mother and father were divorced many years ago. My father um, remarried a woman from the Philippines and uh, a bunch of her kids flew in from the Philippines, and uh, they had the wedding. They all we all stayed at Palace Station. Okay. Yeah. You know, yep. which is you know a lower economic yeah. thing, but we, it was just a really great, fun memory. And you know, I think they got married at some cheap little chapel thing. <coughs> and then another time, <coughs> excuse me. Um, my dad was living in L.A., and I was gonna. Uh, the Rolling Stones were playing at the MGM, wow. and I thought, ah, this would be a really cool thing to do with my dad, because I'm a big Stones fan. And through San Francisco, the, all the clubs up there were owned by Bill Graham, which got eaten up by Live Nation, yep. mm-hmm. but through my friends and years of living in San Francisco, uh, I had the ultimate hookup for Stones uh, tickets. Like, I had seen the Rolling Stones at Dodger Stadium once, and Jack Nicholson was in directly behind me.
1: Oh, yeah, so like you, that, you were in front of Jack Nicholson. Yeah, okay. so I mean, like, I always got hooked hook up, up,
0: first 10 rows. So we got a will call at MGM, and there's no tickets for me. And me and my dad had drove over from from L.A.
1: And this is no cell phone <clears throat> time or
0: anything? Before cell phone. Oh, yeah. And uh, we were like, well, what are we going to do? And uh, there were tickets to Carrot Top. And we bought tickets to Carrot Top. <laughs> And one of my happiest memories in Las Vegas is sitting with my dad, and he's drinking a gin and tonic, and just he just had the greatest laugh, you know, and just seeing my dad laugh at it reminds at, you when you were a kid, a sitting kid, in a car, the, exactly. That's you know? beautiful, man. So I, I don't, I don't have no like, crazy, you know, stories with Vegas. I, I got a lot of really sweet memories with Vegas, you know. Have, so so it's funny that I was such a snob for Vegas for so long. And my dad did get to see me perform here a few times before he died. But, um, uh, now I, I, I really love coming to Vegas.
1: When you were in San Francisco, how was the comedy scene back then? And was Robin Williams, the guy back then?
0: (sighs) He was the guy in the seventies and Mm eighties, but he would always come around. Okay. And the, it was the golden age of comedy in San Francisco. Um, what year? When I was, this was is goal? this is the this is the early to mid nineties. Mid nineties, yeah. Um, so it, it was me, Margaret Cho, Pat Oswalt, Mark Maron, Greg Proops, Blaine Kapatch. There was really, really great, brilliant comedians there, and and doing, you know, because I had come from Florida in the southern circuits where there was kind of a lot of, yeah, you know, yeah, um, it's Florida, yeah, we get it, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> So everybody was trying to do, you know, impress each other with like the most uh, brilliantly written material, you know, like a dick joke wasn't as impressive as a joke about existentialism. Yes. Or or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. But so Robin Williams, it was always like, oh, man, Robin came in last night. Got you. It was and So he would always pop in and I never got to meet the guy. Um, Two years before he died, uh, there's a great gig in Mill Valley. Uh, over the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County, uh, the Throckmorton theater mm-hmm. and he would come there and hang out and, and I, I, I met him there like two years before he died and couldn 't have been a nicer guy yeah Absolutely. he was, I, I lived in Amsterdam he was fascinated by the, the the late night talk show that I had there and he 's asking me all these questions about holland and uh, he had taken us to dinner after the show, and twice during well at the show some comedian came up i thought it was kind of um shitty this comedian came up and all these comedians are hanging out after the show like a group of eight And robin williams and this guy walks up and he's like hey robin did you get my email about that uh benefit for so and so oh my god and he goes oh i can't be i can't make it but please and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this wad of cash i mean i'm guessing it was like three four hundred dollars he goes please take this I don't think he had a bunch of ones. Yeah, no, you know? <laughs>
1: he's not rolling. It was a ones. wad.
0: He, oh, please take this. I can't make it. And I thought it was really a mm-hmm. a, a loser thing. I've always held that against this comedian. Who Do you didn't. know who that comedian is? I did. I won't say his name. No, don't say He's not name. anyone of merit. Okay. <laughs> but, um, and then we were eating dinner, and twice while we were eating dinner, uh, two different women came up with, you know, and Robin, I'm sorry to bother you. Can I have a photo? And the man's like mid-bite, and he just jumped up immediately from his plate. Oh, yes, of course. Took the photo and then sat back down. The, the man was so magnanimous. Yeah, he was and, great. And um, when he killed himself, one of my first thoughts was, the guy was probably tired of people asking him for shit. Yeah. Because like, uh, you know, what, the few moments I saw him, everybody had their hand out. Or wanted something from
1: 100%. it. 100%. And like people... and that's why it's great to be a real low-level comedian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> people always see the, uh, see
1: the glory, but they never see the other side <laughs> of the story. They think, and a lot of people have this misconception that money's going to change their lives. Yeah, you get more stuff, but you have more problems. Than well, my mother,
0: more... my mother says it best, and that's um, it, it, rich people aren't happy because they don't know who really loves them because everyone wants something from them. absolutely. Poor people are better off because they know exactly who loves them.
1: A hundred percent, a hundred percent.
0: Thanks, mom. You're welcome, mom. Thanks, mom. I have a funny story about my mom. Can I tell you? Yeah, in? absolutely. Because it just happened to me last night. Um, my mother, uh, she was a teenager in the 50s and loved Elvis Presley.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My mother hates Frank Sinatra. Right. I'm not a big Frank Sinatra fan, but I appreciate yeah. a, a few of his songs. You know, you make me feel so young. <laughs> uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, Summer Wind. Uh. Anyway, so when the pandemic hit, my mother was visiting me, and she's 81 years old. And, you know, she stayed with me for the first four months of the pandemic. And so I took this opportunity because I have a big, massive vinyl record collection of vinyl. So I pulled out some, you know, uh, a few Frank Sinatra records and put it on and trying to, you know, turn her around mm-hmm. on old blue eyes. And uh, she's got no love in her no. heart for Frank. <laughs> she says uh, he talks his songs. He doesn't sing them. Oh. That's hit her biggest criticism of Frank Sinatra. So last night after the show, um, I'm walking back to my room and the other comedian was sitting at the blackjack table and i said hey brother stop and say hi to him and uh there's a dude next to me he goes, hey uh, meet uh nick and nick gets up and he vaguely looks like frank sinatra and he tells me uh he is a frank sinatra impersonator and he just got done with his show somewhere in town and uh and i go hey man that's a really cool thing to do and the guy goes everybody loves frank and i go <laughs> well not my mother. <laughs> Not
1: your mom. Not your-
0: <laughs> what? But she loves Elvis. Loves Elvis.
1: Wow. Loves Elvis. It, what? What? Um. When you were in San Francisco, um, when did you? The first time you went up and stand up was where though? The first time you ever hit a stage was Orlando. Sport. Orlando. How'd you do your first time up?
0: I did okay. Um, but I was, I was in 11th grade. I, okay. uh, I had a fake ID and my father drove me to my first open mic night. He
1: must've been so excited.
0: He was. Yeah. I actually, I was, uh, embarrassed for him to come in with me and ask him to wait in the car. Uh, and he did when it was cool. And then we got to talk about everything on the drive home, what worked, what didn't work. And then when I went back like, um, a week later, he went in with me. Um, and do you remember that moment after you got off stage and talked to him that that yeah i mean it was great i mean you know i was in 11th grade see you know because from the moment i was 11 after that guy pulled me on stage there's nothing i wanted to do in my life other than be a stand-up comedian Mm -hmm. so i became a student of it and and it was something me and my dad did we would watch all the hbo hour specials i i would i would get the tv guide every week and i'd circle where there'd be, com- you know, when there'd be comedians on Carson or all these different shows, and so when when there was a comedian on TV, I was in front of the TV watching it. So um, the when I first I was in I was I was seventeen years old when I started, mm-hmm. and I actually I made a couple of props in art class. Okay, that I, I I brought with me. I remember it really stupid, you know, like one was like a square piece of plexiglass, and I drew that uh, red. Um, box with the X in it from, yep. from Family Feud and I did the host of Family Feud at a singles bar hitting on women. And then, <laughs> eh. Yeah. It was stupid. Yeah. You know? But then shortly thereafter, I only used the props like um the first couple of times. It's kinda one of them was really stupid. I um I took a Sharpie marker and on my stomach I, I drew a, a UPC code for their own products, you know, yeah. when they scan it. And I I said, um, I'm from a big family and my father works in a grocery store and this is the only way he can keep track of all of this. It was just, just stupid, silly stuff. When did you know you were funny? Like, oh, I can, this could be a career. Uh, well, you know, my parents used to argue a lot and if I was funny, they would stop arguing. So I knew there was, there was power in being funny and silly Mm -hmm. from very early age. And what age were you in standup where you could
1: support yourself just from stand up?
0: Well, when I was a senior in high school, I started doing one-nighters around Florida. And I'd borrow my mom's car. And it was a couple times where I played. You know, and I was drinking. I was a wild man. And I, you know, enjoyed um, the attention that uh, you got from being a comedian. So I remember there was a couple times... Miami's really far from Orlando. Oh, yeah. And I remember a couple times driving back from Miami, and uh, my mom was waiting in the driveway to go to work. And like I, I pulled up at like, <laughs> you know 6 in the morning, and she, she's angry and gets in the car and took it. Um, but I, I was making money in high school doing one, great, one-nighters. And then when I graduated high school um, at 18, uh, like a month later I was booked in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, to MC for $150. I, I drove halfway across the country for $150 and I'll never forget driving into Tulsa and seeing the city limits sign. I mean, you'd have thought I was doing SNL or the tonight show. I was like, man, I'm in showbiz, you know? And, uh, and then I, I I think I, and from the comedians that came through Orlando, they guys had said, you got me work. And so like after Tulsa, I was booked. I drove up to Milwaukee to MC for 150 bucks. And then driving back from, to Florida from Milwaukee, I I stopped in Chicago and Indianapolis and Louisville and uh, Atlanta did guest sets and i'm sleeping in my car yeah you know
1: it's amazing once you're addicted to comedy like what you'll do especially when you first start out for a gig like you will travel halfway across the country yeah no, lose you know, money
0: on it but you just want the stage time yeah no, I, used, I used to have to take greyhound buses to gigs and um I, and when i was in high school i didn't have a, a car i used to hitchhike to gigs really yeah any dangerous moments in i that? did have a dangerous moment what happened uh, some guy wasn't gonna let me out of the car and um, okay, I, I started um, just kicking and punching everything the car, and the guy pulled over <laughs> me out. <so>. And then <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to be violated easy.
1: <laughs> You're not going out without swinging. Now, did, I guess as soon as you get out of that car, you got to hitchhike into another one. I mean, or did you take a break from hitchhiking for a while after that? Uh,
0: I, I, after that, I I never did it again. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah,
1: good. Um, so, you know, you're, you've traveled the country, you traveled the world. What's been your favorite place to perform? Because I have never traveled outside the United States to perform and I hear different things from different comics, but I was like, let me get it from you. Cause you've been everywhere. Um, is it true when you talk about race that really doesn't translate to other countries, not
0: translate to other countries because they don't, I've seen a lot of, yeah uh american comedians go to england especially and 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 europe and they don't have the the racial hang-ups that we have i mean in england they talk about class Mm. it's always the class system the you know the upper class versus the lower class and all that um i mean there's racial problems and there's people that talk about it but it seems like that's a real american comedy thing it is uh, and that's what europeans say that most every american comedian talks about race
1: well because they i i guess over there if you're
0: black you're british because we're pitted against each other we are from the moment
1: we're born no what do you
0: expect it's
1: so true it's it's so true because the rest of the country you're just part of that you've been beating yourself up for years i'm still beating myself up i mean i was everything trump hated black and asian come on now it was terrible. It was terrible growing up in Houston, Texas, being the only kind of kid. Because I used to wonder why I was the only one of me. Like, I ever saw a mixed race kid. And then I was looking it up. It wasn't legal until 1967 in the United States.
0: Like, legal Amazing, to yeah. marry. And you're like. Yeah, and people don't know that. And that story of the, the love couple, their last name was Love. Yeah. It was, mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't see that movie, but I, I know the story. Yeah. You know, and they had gotten married uh it, it was a black woman a white man and in love and they're in their home in their bed and these redneck cops yep. kick in the door could you imagine you I mean, fucking you, imagine you you're still, with your wife yeah but you still kind of see that today
1: in america people getting violated at home
0: Well, you gotta you know this i mean the entire country and the whole world everyone is is has been traumatized yeah yeah um by the last year and a half and um you know, I think everybody needs a, a good laugh right now, Absolutely. and everyone needs to loosen the fuck up. How you know, and have a sense of humor and be able to laugh at ourselves. And I think, you know, what I've learned traveling the world, and and for years I was trying to make a travel show, comedy travel show, where I wanted to be the Anthony Bourdain of comedy, because I've been doing the international circuits for yeah. over twenty years, and I'm great friends with comedians all over the world, and like of every ethnicity, sexual persuasion, every kind of human is in comedy. And I'm great friends with all these different humans. And it's fascinating, like, what people make jokes about in other countries and what's taboo in other countries, what you need to stay away from, you know? Um, But um, uh, I forget where I was going with that. Oh,
1: is there... What you said, you were trying to make a TV, did it... Oh, that was
0: it. Did The... the, uh, the ultimate mark of civilization, in my opinion, is if your country has stand-up comedy. Yeah, if people can laugh and uh, and have a sense of humor about themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's a, a lot of seriously uptight people in the United States now. Who is are, it like that everywhere who, though? No, no. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. I yeah, because you I haven't have, traveled yeah. since the pandemic. Well, let's talk pre-pandemic. <clears throat> um, I, I mean, just, uh, just people need to. Loosen the fuck up. Just just take a joke, <laughs> you know? Not be ready to kill someone because they have a different opinion than you.
1: Besides the United you know? States, what's your favorite place to perform
0: in the world? So many. I mean, uh, London is amazing. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it all goes back to that San Francisco thing. My favorite kind of audiences are multinational and multi-ethnic yeah. and... Mm-hmm. Somewhat well informed. So, so, would London fit that? Because I would imagine that's a pretty white crowd. No, London is one of the most diverse cities in the world. Mm. You, you've never been to London? I've been there several times, but I didn't see a lot of black oh, people. yeah, no. Was, or a lot of people of color. Well, the area tons of in. Jamaicans and there's tons of Nigerians. Oh well, there you Gina go. Gina is okay. a perfect example. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are. Uh, just two and there's tons of Indians yeah. and, and then it's an international city. You got tons of everybody there. That's great. Um, but i've also
1: never performed there as well like i'm just a tourist
0: going to tourist spots you know what i mean and, yeah just because you know you you saw uh, a bunch of white people at the london bridge <laughs> <laughs> they're from america though <laughs> probably probably with their yeah. nebraska sweatshirts And <laughs> the europeans say americans always wear white tennis shoes and have t-shirts or sweatshirts that say where they're from on it yeah which is uh, true, which is true. 100 uh, percent.: I love Amsterdam, I love Paris. Uh, there's a hot scene in Berlin. I love um, Sydney, Australia is amazing, Auckland. Um, when you- Sydney and Auckland are not that diverse, That's pretty white. That's okay. you know. but it's, it's exotic because you're there. But there's all these amazing comedy scenes all over Asia now. Yeah, They stopped. I, I have done China a lot. Uh, and I and China was was really exciting. The Chinese government has shut down the English language comedy there, but uh, Shanghai and Beijing, like when you play there, like half the audience is is English speaking Chinese people that were either educated in English speaking countries, uh, you know, went to university, or that they were they grew up there and then they've 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 moved back or not moved back they've moved to china they're you know whatever c- citizens of canada australia america mm-hmm. whatever um, and then the other half of the audience is international of every flavor you could have you know like anytime i've gone to shanghai i always met the most interesting people like french filmmakers japanese anime artists uh, swiss journalists i mean it's it's amazing and Italians, Germans, and then you got all the people from the English-speaking countries: England, Ireland, Scotland, America, Canada. You know, do
1: you do you have to edit your material in each market you go to, or can you say have say, hey, this is a killer forty-five minutes, and it's going to work all well, over you the know world? I mean,
0: comedy is is, is ubiquitous; it's yeah. all over the world, and and then yeah you know and and you know the russell peters is also a good friend of mine and yeah, his him. rise to fame was from youtube and yeah. and uh, and youtube is how most people around the world learned about stand-up comedy and you, I, you talk to all these different asian comedians and it's they that's how they discovered stand-up comedy and then that's what they've used as their university tool to study it and they're on there looking at They're watching the comedy podcast They're they're looking at, they hear names, they look up the comedian and then they watch everything, you know,
1: what is the one thing for the way I was a
0: student with HBO specials and, and stand up and records and records, you know, these comedians are doing it with YouTube. When what would for a person that's traveling
1: internationally for the first time doing stand up in different countries or decided to
0: go into that, what would be your biggest piece of advice for them? ah i mean it's different you know what works in ireland doesn't work in england you Mm -hmm. gotta and that's why it's a real thrill for me to go into these different countries and to make that adjustment yeah but there's a lot of places i've been going for so long like amsterdam and paris and london and ireland that um you know i know what works you know but it, 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 it 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 took a few visits to get my sea legs but then you go to new new places like i played in mongolia a couple times I mean they god they're really they love comedy. Um I it's just you know like know what's taboo. Uh-huh. I think would be the best advice. Like in China you cannot talk about the 3 Ts. They Guitar. tell you this. Taiwan, no. Tibet and Tiananmen. And if you 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 talk about any of the 3 Ts, you you get Take into the airport if mm-hmm. you're lucky if you're lucky yeah absolutely <laughs> you know? yeah um but yeah it's too bad those those gigs in china don't exist because um i think shanghai is one of the most exciting cities in the world you've traveled so much is it every time you felt like you were in danger yeah loads of times um i was maced the first time i went to paris why um they don't have guns and these mm. two guys tried to uh rob me um you're
1: like, I'm an American comedian.
0: I have no money. <laughs> I didn't have that. Didn't, didn't, didn't. Well, there was no time to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, these guys were walking towards me in the distance on this thin road, and it was at night. And, uh, you know, the back story is that I took French in high school, and uh, I got a D, and I failed off the baseball team, which meant a lot to me when, yeah. when I was 17. Um, so years later, I'm in Paris and I'm walking down the street and these two guys are walking towards me and one had like a, like, he, it, 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 I thought it was a, 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 like a crutch or a walking brace. He was kind of limping with this, but it, it was, it turned out to be a metal pole as they got closer to me. I moved over a little bit, it was thin street. They moved over a little bit more. I moved over a little bit more. They moved over. next thing. You know, they're right up on top of me and dude with the pole jams me in the stomach with it and it's go time, baby. Yeah. It's two against one. No time to tell him I was an American comedian. (laughs) Um, And I don't know where it came from, and I'm not proud of it. Um, I barked at them. (laughs) 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 And that made the dude with the pole start wailing on me. But it was winter, and I had a big coat on, and it actually didn't hurt too bad. And then I looked to see what dude number two was doing. I looked at dude number two, and he maced me right in the Uh. eyes. And I freaked out, and I wailed my arms, and I broke free, and I just... Was running and I'm blinded in all this pain. And uh I got like to the end of the block and I looked they were not chasing me. Obviously I had confused them when I barked. And um I just looked back and yelled, Enjante. Yep. That means nice to meet you. And then that so, was it. I can't believe I failed that class. See so, in You know, I mean I got to apply my French on the streets of Paris. One word. Yeah. <laughs> and then a bark. One word in a bar. Yeah, I, I almost drowned in Thailand. Um, I had a strange story once when I was, this is about 10 years ago, I was flying from Beijing to Hong Kong and, and it's all Chinese people. I'm, I'm like the only white guy on the plane and I'm, I've been in this situation before, mm-hmm. whatever. I'm sitting there reading a book and then they make some announcement in Chinese and then the, the plane lands. It's like a four hour flight. I had yeah. done it several times before. After two hours, the plane lands. And I'm like, and I'm, does anybody speak English? And there was one Chinese guy from San Francisco. And uh, he told me that there was lightning in, in Hong Kong and they're, everyone's getting off. And I stuck next to this guy. And they, you know, the plane lands on the tarmac and they put everyone on buses. We go to the terminal and then they put us on these other buses. And this is a city I don't know the name of. Oh, wow. In the middle of China. Mm-hmm. And they took us into the city, and everyone checked into this hotel for everyone on the plane. It was really weird. And they said that the next day there would be a flight for us, like it, it, like that the the buses would be leaving at at like nine in the morning. I was down in the lobby at like six thirty. Right, just, just I had yeah. no idea. I was so like, am I going to be in a North Korean work camp? <laughs> you know, breaking rocks for the rest of my life. Um, and then the we flew into. I f- to Hong Kong, and uh, you know, thank God there was one guy that spoke English that could tell me what was happening. Um, we got to Hong Kong, and the promoter picked me up, and I said, "Wow, that must have been a hell of a lightning storm last night." And he goes, "Oh yeah, no, it was just a normal storm." So I, to this day, it was one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me from mm. traveling.
1: Now, and you had a talk show in Amsterdam.
0: Yeah, how'd that all come about? Well, you know, the international circuits, London was the key for me. I, 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 had, um, Rich Hall is a good friend of mine and he was in with London and he thought my humor was very smart and that I would do very well there. So I, I took a few systematic trips to London, slept on his couch and he coached me. He said, you know, you don't go to the best clubs first. Mm-hmm. You got to get your sea legs first. So, you know, do sets at the peripheral clubs and work out, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And then once, you know, you get a handle on that, then you go to the best clubs and you do your set. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what I did. And I got in with London and then, you know, I started playing there, like, you know, do gigs. Okay, I'm booked six months from now. I came back six months, did more gigs and that snowballed to other gigs in London. What and, is the one spot to be at in London? Is it the comedy store uh, It was for a long time. I. Um, yeah, there's the comedy store is the best. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Top Secret is a new club there. It's okay. It's not as cool as the comedy store. But if you're going to go there, you know, it's like the comedy store in, in L.A. Yeah. Or, or the comedy store in New York. You do like, I think you do 20-minute spots there. Okay. But if you want to headline, you do the Soho Theater. That's That's been in the last 10 years. Uh, and that's, that's a great new hotspot. But so I got in with London. That led to gigs around England. And then that led to gigs around Europe. And I played in Amsterdam a few times. And I fell in love with a Dutch woman. So I ended up moving to... And I was getting all this work in Europe. And I thought, you know, um, I, I moved to Amsterdam for this love story. And then I was, you know, doing gigs around Europe. I would still come back to the States and, you know, set up a, you know month of gigs and Mm -hmm. go visit my mom stuff like that but I was with this woman for two years and then um, she dumped me and I was just about to move back to the United States when these people from this Dutch television network were looking for an American to host an American style late night talk show and um, coincidentally I had just gotten back from Hong Kong and I had I wore a tailored suit Oh, Uh, and I also had the best set that night it was at the, the, the number one comedy club, um, in Amsterdam is called Toomler. So they had the auditions there and then all the other comedians, um, looked like they were, they were dressed to go cut the grass or something, yeah. you know, and you guys wearing t-shirts or whatever. So, I mean, aside from having like the strongest set, I think I looked, you looked I, the part, I looked the part. So, um, I got the gig. So I, I had a late night talk show on Dutch television for two years. And it was really fun. And, um, you know, a big part of the show was I was a foreigner experiencing Dutch culture. So every episode I would film a five-minute little film where I would go around and experience something of of Dutch culture. Like I spent a day with a Dutch farmer. I I covered the prime minister debates. I was on the floor with a, you know, press pass. Um, Was given a tour of the red light district by a, a former prostitute that does social work for the women, helps them with health care and pay their taxes and things like that. Uh, Every aspect of Dutch society was explained to me. And then um, they did this cute thing for a while where they would try and teach me Dutch one word at a time, and it was called the word of the day. And so like uh, uh, a woman in a bikini would come out with a Dutch word on a a card. It was gratuitous, TNA, but it was really cute. And then the audience would explain to me how to say the word, what it meant. So Dutch people are, you know, they, the, the stereotype of Americans is, Americans will, this is what Europeans say. Americans will tell you their, your, their entire life story within the first two minutes that you meet them.
1: <laughs> yes. Which is true.
0: Yeah, 100%. Dutch people are very stoic people and they're very hard to get to know. You could live next door to somebody and just know nothing about them. They, they're just, they're not open people. But having this TV show gave me like this magic passport um, and people were, would open up to me wherever I would go. Like people go polder model. That's your word of the day. And I'm like buying you know <laughs> a paper or something at the store. Um, and it, it's interesting. The, the racism in Holland is um, is against Moroccans. And when I would go around, Holland, because I was always going around. It's a tiny country; it's like the size of Vermont. I would go all over filming stuff. These Moroccan teenage boys would lose their mind, like uh, uh, like I was Elvis Presley. They would go crazy, and they would. Why is there racism towards Moroccans after World War II? Holland was destroyed, and a lot of Moroccans came to Holland to help rebuild the country, cheap labor, Mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't go back. A lot of them came, and so it's it's interesting. It's the, the way like black teens are portrayed in the media in America yeah. is exactly how Moroccan teens are portrayed there Really? where wow. they'll okay. say the race and, you know, crime stories and things yeah. like this. And it's, 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 there's a, 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 a paradigm pattern typecast to, out there to the, the media portrayal, you know? And, um, so these, these, these kids loved me. And they said, uh, you get to make the jokes about Dutch people that we get in trouble for. Because I was like always making fun of like, they got a lot of silly shit. Like in Holland, there's this, um, there's this game called korfball. ball. Okay. And it's, it's, and, and it's, and it men and women play it together. It's really cute. Um, but what, is, what type of game is it? It's basketball, but you don't have to dribble the ball. So it's white people friendly. Back then. <laughs> so I would say stuff like that. Yeah. And like, um, you know, if a teenager in a little village made that joke, he would, you know, get in trouble for it. Yeah. You know, but me being the TV foreigner guy.
1: What were you? Did you become like a little celebrity out there? Like everybody knew the
0: show. Was it a big show? Uh, out I, there? I mean, you know, it's uh... there were only four network. Stations oh, okay. like yeah. we were in the old days. So, yeah. so, so yeah. You had a big I, audience I, for it. Yeah. I, uh, it, it, it was, it was pretty popular. Well, what, you know? what's your most
1: favorite thing about Amsterdam and Holland? Like if you had to pick one,
0: uh, you know, uh, uh smart uses of small space. There's mm. a, a Dutch term called hazelik, which they say is there's no English language equivalent, but that's horseshit. It means a cozy place. You're in no hurry to leave. Mm. Somewhere that you're like, this is... This is nice. This is Hazelik. Ah, gotcha. That's what it means. So that, uh, the, I mean, they've, they've got a right-wing government now, so things have changed. But um, they, it, the, the progressive laws that were uh, it, advancing um, humanity... I ended up marrying a Dutch woman, um, and, and we got divorced a couple years ago. We're still really good friends. Not the woman that I moved there okay. for. So, um, her ethnicity is Indian and she was from Rotterdam and Rotterdam is the most racially diverse city in Europe. And, um, she could go to the best university and at very affordable. So like they have affordable, you know, they have healthcare for everyone. And if, if you're not from a well-off family, you can still go to a nice, university and be educated. You had a TV show in America. Are you a, referring to my sitcom? sitcom Mr. Yeah. Rhodes? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. How was, how was that experience? Because that's a dream for any comedian to have like their own sitcom.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, it was fun. It was a good.
1: What, what, what was the laugh? What was the laugh?
0: Well, it took me a long time to really appreciate, um, uh, certain aspects of it. Um, because you have no control. That's what people (laughs) find out a lot. Like I had no control. Yeah. And, um, the original concept, I was going to be a public defender lawyer. I was going to be the voice of the voiceless and, um, you know, standing up for the little guy and all that. And then, um, they, NBC said we had a lawyer show fail. Can you make Tom a teacher? And, um, you know it, it it seemed like a take it or leave it deal i i maybe should have stuck with my guns on the public defender thing but i was so young and cocky and arrogant yeah. i thought i i could make anything work so uh basically uh it it i couldn't be myself i uh, they didn't give me uh very many jokes i just gave nice advice to the kids you know michael don't run away your parents would be so sad yeah and, but I mean, it wasn't all that. And, but like the, the ki- the kids got the jokes and it wasn't, um, uh, it, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't portray myself or my humor. So it was a very frustrating experience, even though, uh, I made a truckload of cash and I was living in the Hollywood Hills for a few years. And, um, well, that's the
1: one thing. Cause I've had a couple of sitcoms get picked up, but then, since I didn't write it, it's really not your voice. And then it, the ones I was on like that, it's so lucky just to get, to be able to shoot like you shot. Cause it's a struggle to get to even.
0: Yeah. That I mean, point. And it's amazing. You know, the, the, the pilot, they used three of my jokes. Mm. So everybody loved the pilot and the, the show got picked up into a series and it's so difficult to even, even get to, to that point to get to the point where you can make a pilot yeah. and then most people never even like, if they make it to series, a lot of times back then, you know, they would do two or three episodes and they would, the show would be canceled, you know. Um, How many episodes did you shoot? Uh, we did a full season. We did, nice. we did a full season and um, it averaged, I think, 13 million viewers a week. And, but this was in the time NBC was must see TV. And like their magic number was like 15 million. They wanted mm. 15 million. Was that
1: the Cosby, <clears throat> the, f- f- what What was my friends everything? everything. Cheers well, no Cheers was ABC. I'm not sure.
0: But I yeah, Musty TV. Okay. Yeah. I mean they had they had everything. And 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 I wanted to be on NBC because I had grown up being a student of comedy. You know, SNL and Carson and Letterman and like uh when I did Montreal there was a there was like a bidding war between Fox and NBC. HBO had offered me a special, but it was so sort of like these three networks. You're talking about just for laughs, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, for me, there was no, it was no, there was nothing to consider. It was only NBC, NBC. you know, because uh, the, to me, NBC meant American comedy.
1: Like I just broke into comedy mm-hmm. like 10 years ago, and I know you've been in a longer. But I've heard stories of JFL where comedians were leaving it doesn't happen
0: anymore really but leaving with
1: tv deals that's insane yeah i got a lot of
0: money i i got a big uh big check to uh to develop a show and then and then it was on a full season but you know the the you know uh the cast was amazing had ron glass from barney miller um and and he played my nemesis on the show and uh he was one of the best friends that i made and I thought that was really interesting that, like, um, here's this guy who, on, on, the, on the TV show. He's always against me, and we're supposed to be, like, enemies. And, like, he, he was, like, the sweetest guy. And I grew up watching Barney Miller, you know? And uh, he's no longer with us. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Tobolowski, one of the greatest character actors uh, in American history. He, on Groundhog's Day, he played Ned Ryerson. Okay, yep. And... Um, Jensen Ackles was on the show. He's on this he's done his 11th season of Supernatural now. Okay. Um just god so many um brilliant uh actors, but And at the beginning when I asked you that story,
1: you gave me a laugh. How long did it take you to get to the point where you appreciated it? Cuz
0: I'm sure you were Well, it was like many years later. Yeah. Uh you know because like everybody wants something from you when you're you know oh yeah when you're-, you're hot and then when the show uh it stopped um you know it uh it gets chilly pretty chilly Yeah it does in uh, in show business but the enduring friendships that I made from cast members and people that worked on the show is the best thing that I got out of it
1: Yeah it's interesting you say it gets chilly because that's something that's so hard for I for anyone in the industry because you're hot, and then the industry they'll just toss some people to the side.
0: And well, it and, was an interesting experience yeah. too because I I had been like the face of Comedy Central for two years leading up yep. to it, so I wasn't really discovered uh, in Montreal. I had I had been you know uh, on Comedy Central regularly and and was pretty red hot, and in those Comedy Central. Those in those years leading up to the sitcom. What year was this? Uh, the, the sitcom was ninety six and ninety seven. So you're so talking about ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. Okay. So ninety four, ninety five. My the audiences that was I was selling hard tickets and it was great, man. It would be like you know uh, every ethnicity you could think of, punkers, lesbians, just like you know, uh, you know, cool different people. And then after I had the show where I was the nice advice teacher guy, then the people who started showing up to the shows were like older white couples. Yeah. And so like, oh, what happened to my, my, people. my what happened to my crowd? <laughs> yeah. You know? And then and then and I wasn't uh I wasn't the sweet guy they saw on TV on the on the standup thing, you know? Yeah. It's kind of
1: like Bob Saget, people that went to go see Bob. Yeah. It was never as filthy as. Yeah. Yeah. But but I'm saying he's like, totally even Eddie Murphy when he was on SNL, he was like, you're not going to see that shit tonight. You know,
0: don't bring your kids out for that. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I've, 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 uh, you know, um, uh, I, I still have people that tell me they, they watched it growing up and it, 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 it it meant a lot to, to some people and it meant a lot to me because, um, my dad, my dad and my sister are both dead now, mm-hmm. but they were both living in L.A. I got, a, got my little sister a job on the show. There's, the show was filmed at Universal. Oh, what a great and, place. Uh, yeah. And and my sister, I got her a job as a writer's assistant. So she would she had the little golf cart, and she'd be driving around the Universal lot. And there was some times when I would get really frustrated um, with the writing, and I was just like, you know, just... This doesn't represent who I am. And I'd just be all like, you know, exasperated. Uh, and my sister a few times said, you know, get on. And I got on the golf cart and she'd drive to the back of the Universal lot where there's like the little New York yep. town scene Absolutely. where they film. And then right next to the New York town scene is the little, the, the main square from Back, back, back to, to, the, to future. the Future. Yep. And so, and my, me and my sister loved that film. And so she'd pull up there and she'd just, you know, put her arm around me and go, you know, look where we're at. Yeah. We're on the universal lot. So, I mean, there was a lot of really beautiful moments like that. And then the other, the other beautiful thing, you know, my father's the reason I became a comedian and uh, drove me to my first open mic night and all that. My father sat in the front row for every taping. It's amazing. And, and my man. dad, one of his biggest thrills, he said... The, he didn't have to, he would pull up to the, the gate at Universal and the guards all knew him and they would just lift the thing. He wouldn't even, he just got the biggest thrill out of that. So so there were so many wonderful things that, that happened from it. And then also the money that I made from that, um, I looked at it as my NBC artist grant. Yeah. So I moved back to New York City because I had lived there when I was 20, like a dog broke. And I always swore if I ever had money, I would live in New York with style. So I, I went back to New and that's years that 98, 99, uh, I was hardcore at the Comedy Cellar. That's how I'm in with these mm-hmm. beautiful humans, um, you know, legends of the comedy game. Mark Cohen says great things about you. Yeah, I love Mark. Yeah, known Mark's the best. And I'm known uh, the, 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 everyone SD, at the SD, yeah. I mean, these people yeah. are family to me. Yeah. These people are family to me. And that never would have happened without the money from that sitcom to be able to move there as an artist and then also in that time was when i started taking these trips to london i had the money five hours to do it five, so six hours, you know yeah. my with my nbc artist grant i i elevated myself as a comedian in many different ways like, that still is paying dividends to this day
1: like the thing i don't like about myself which i love about you is I'm scared to really travel, travel, and do comedy because I have this thing in my head where I'm going to get arrested and never get let out of jail. Like, whatever country I go to, something's going to happen, and, like, I see all these stories, but I love people that just can go out there, travel, and, like, I'll take vacations with the family at times, but... I don't know, man. I don't have it in me to do that, but I want to do it. I, I, at least London, you know, try it out one time, a couple times. Well, I got,
0: I got addicted to it. Yeah. And that thrill of going to different countries and finding out what works and to, to stand in another country flat-footed, telling it yeah. how it is. And it's just, exciting. And just and crushing is, is beautiful.
1: Let's talk about the opposite of crushing. Have you gone to a country like your first time and just totally bombed?
0: Yeah, it's happened.
1: It's happened? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you got to go through that because you, I mean, it is nothing worse than, it, it's probably the worse feeling a person can feel like just sitting there and you get real hot your whole body. Is
0: like, well, the first time I went to um, Scotland, the Edinburgh festival, I had just gone to visit yeah. to check it out. And there was this show called late and live. And a lot of people went there just to heckle. And it was this night where there was all these American comedians. And this is 2000s. This is a year okay. before September 11th when everyone wow. was shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, um, it, was all, it was all a night of American comedians. And it turned into the biggest anti-American hate rally <laughs> I have ever seen. Yeah, and, uh, and, and they were just crucifying every act. And my friend, Rich Hall, was supposed to close the show he mysteriously got laryngitis and asked me if I would close the show. And me being the cocky fucker that I am, I thought they would love me. But I I was still drinking, and I was pounding a lot of liquid courage. Uh, That didn't have too much to do with the scenario, but uh, it was a factor. And um, the sound men played God Bless America as I walked out. And this already (laughs) anti-American... Rabid audience lost their minds. And I couldn't even get started on the mic. Fuck you, go back to America. Fuck you, go back to America. And I had this really um, serene moment. I sat down on the stage, um, horribly neglected people style. You can't say Indian style anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and I lit a cigarette. And I, just, and I can still picture this panoramic scene of all these people and their, their, their contorted faces and the spit coming out of their mouth going, fuck you, go back to America. You know? And then I, I got up and I tried to tell a couple of jokes and it was just, I couldn't even get, it was just, it, it, that, that was, um, that was my Vietnam moment where <clears throat> for years after that, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking I was still there. Oh, <laughs> whew, oh God. Just a dream did did uh but I how long back, was
1: that set? How long was that set?
0: I mean I, ten I, minutes I mean I think I probably was out there for five I was five, probably yeah, okay. supposed to do fifteen yeah. but um I went back to the Edinburgh Festival in two thousand and fourteen and I did the entire month, <clears throat> and then I did that latent live show, which isn 't as rowdy as it was in two thousand yeah. they 've really curbed it a lot, but I did it like ten because you do Edinburgh for a month, and I did. Late and live ten times that month, and I went there loaded with every heckler comeback, uh, like I was ready. And anytime anybody, and I told the story of what happened to me, and I said, you know, this is this is I'm I'm back for revenge, baby, you know. And and it was great. It was you know I I think the best thing you can do with bad memories is pave over them with good ones.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I I so I mean
0: I I paved hard over that. I had a great experience. I
1: hear. Cause I have a couple of friends that go that they love storytelling of their correct. They love to hear stories.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Irish have, uh, all the Irish comedians are storytellers in England a lot. I tell you what they love in, in the UK is, yeah. is when you do a show and you drop these, these pieces of information at the beginning. And then at the end, you bring it all together and tie it up in a little, yeah. well. they, they love when you pull, when you bring everything back together at the end
1: okay okay yeah. now you said you haven't drank in seven years yeah. how's that been for you
0: well it, one of the best decisions yeah, i ever made yeah. yeah um and was
1: it tough during a pandemic because really there was nothing else to do or did it make it easier
0: no i, I had no desire good for you yeah um uh, you know I, I my dad uh was killed by a drunk driver in 2009 my sister died of breast cancer in 2011. So 2013, 2014, I had stopped drinking for pleasure. Mm-hmm. I was really just numbing myself. And I see, uh, like, Facebook memories pop up. Mm. Those pictures from yeah. 2013, 2014, or 2012, 2013, and, like, just had this, you know, bloated, alcoholic face. And, um, you know, when I busted my head open, I, I honestly think Jesus pushed me off that stool. Yeah. And... uh he, because, because he's cruel <laughs> <laughs> see and they, they'd love you in England yeah because <laughs> you just brought it back um I and you know and, and I I knew it would make me a better comedian and everything I've ever done in my life has been to make me a better comedian I moved to New York to be a better comedian I moved to Europe so I could have new experiences things to talk about everything I have ever done in my life has been so it would advance me as a better comedian and that was the ultimate. I mean, in vanity, because I was—I yeah. used to be a relatively good-looking guy when I was younger, and uh, and and I, I I knew it was making me ugly. Yeah. And uh, but most importantly, was I knew it would make me a better comedian, and it and it did. And it, the sharpness I have on stage from not drinking, and I've got just this—you know—this this encyclopedia of of, uh, you know, this library of jokes and stories about anything. I, whenever I, when I'm headlining, it's my favorite part of the show. I always ask if there's someone from a different country in the audience because I have a story or joke about just about anywhere. I'll get stumped every once in a while in a Lithuania or a Kazakhstan, but I, I've been most everywhere and I, I you know, and, and, I'm, and I, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not cruel. I don't put people down for anything. I, I you know, I... The whole, I want to unite humanity in my comedy. And the whole uh, point of, of, of my humor is to, to try and lift humanity and celebrate us. So, um, you know, I, I find that really exciting when, when I ask that because I don't know who's in the audience and what's going to come out.
1: Well, what I love about Russell and you, <clears throat> you're worldly. Like, literally, that's when y'all tour. You can go anywhere and talk about the culture. You know, and that's the one thing that, I lack a bunch of, because I'm American. I stayed in America. I visited Paris. I've been to London, but it's a thing where I just love people that are worldly and I want to be worldly, but I I got a wife. I you got, got Vegas now. You got, I got, you you got, got but, but you got, that everybody you got comes Egypt. Here you got Paris. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <That's> like, <laughs> I love when people say that who live the there,
1: New York, why New travel? York. You got the whole <laughs> world right here.
0: I love that. And it looks
1: just like it too. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, so. I see in uh, this is definitely like I see a lot of comedians that's been doing comedy a lot uh, when I travel and things. They get stuck on the laurels. Like they don't come up with new material anymore. You always hear the same 15, Well, I mean, 20. it's the biggest. <clears throat> how, do you, how do you keep the drive going? Because I've seen people go, look, I'm this age. It's not like I'm going to blow up. I'm going to just do the same 15, 20 minutes, get my paycheck and balance. Or 45 minutes and get my paycheck and balance.
0: Well, as a guy speaking, mm-hmm who's been divorced, I can tell you the exact same advice for comedy is the exact same advice for marriage is you got to keep it fresh Mm. when it gets stale is when you're out of the business, when just you're, you're starting to fade. And I don't think jealousy is the biggest threat to relationships. I think boredom is. Yeah. And you know, you see a comedian who's been on stage and he's, you know, telling the joke he's told for 20 years. I mean, yeah. Hey, full disclosure, I have, I have a couple yeah. one-liners that I've been doing for a long time, but I'm always trying to inject new into the thing. Uh, people who just go A to Z every night yep. and do the same act. Um, you can tell in the comedian's eyes that there's lifelessness yeah. there. You know? Uh, and, and the thing I learned young is when I'm on stage, I look everyone in the eye. Yeah because I think words come out of your mouth more naturally when you look someone in the eye, when you speak to them, you you know, I love, I love that. And so like young comedians and I used to do it, you know, you look over their heads, you know, but there's like a real connection with with people even in in real life, Uh, not just when you're a comedian, but um, the people can tell if, you know, you're just a prostitute going through the motions to get your check. Yeah, I'm to the point now where I love like telling
1: stories that get people emotionally invested, and it's silent, and they're in it, and they're leaning forward, and then you hit them with the big punchline. One, well, you know, the it's, thing that I found so is
0: you know the stories stick in people's minds better than jokes. Yes, and they they uh, they feel more of a connection for you. I mean, even if the story's not that funny, yeah, if it's you know something real from your life versus a barrage of the most killer jokes. I mean, I, I, my, I like to do killer jokes yeah. and stories, but, yeah. <clears throat> but what I've learned is that the stories mean the most to people.
1: In my young career, I've learned two things. People, uh, people, what I, people for like, forget jokes, but they don't forget the person, the comedian, if they're telling their life stories, you know, and, and, there's so many examples in the comedy game where, you know, you had a person just do one-liners and one-liners and one-liners and they were all about jokes. I remember I went to Joe Coy's, a very good friend. And this is when I first started. And this is where I learned. He was my mentor. He brought me in. And this is where I learned my biggest lesson is I was at the Melrose improv. Uh, I went in the middle, had a solid set, but the last dude crushed. And we're walking out, and Joe Cole goes, "You the best. Set. You have the. You had the best set tonight." And I go automatically. I'm like, "No, the last dude crushed." He goes, "What's his name?" I go, "I don't know." And he goes, "Everybody leaving is not going to know his name, but you, I know where you're from. I know what your your dad is, your mom is." Yeah. And he go, "People outgrow jokes, but they don't outgrow you." And that's the that's what I've taken into account. And now that I look from Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Bill Bird, Dave Chappelle you know a lot about them and their lives, rather than just a one-liner. It goes exactly to what you're saying. And that's what I love about comedy, where when I first started, it was more of people hating on comics, but I think podcasts now have created a world where comics are getting, there's still jealousy, I would imagine, but at least comedians are talking to other comedians in this forum. And it's not creating that jealousy as much as it did just 10 years when I started, I saw it and I heard it, you know, what's your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, I mean, you know, it's, there's so much, uh, like me as the young kid wanting to learn about comedy, you know, I wish I could have listened to a radio show where there were comedians talking about the craft and, and, what's it like to perform in other countries and stories have more significance in uh the hearts of the audience than jokes things like that so mm-hmm. um uh i mean yeah it's uh, it's a beautiful thing all right where can people learn more about you tom uh, I, I'm crushing it on Instagram and my Instagram is <laughs> at underscore Tom Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my website is Tom Are you. .net?
1: You couldn't get the.com, man? No. Um, I, in
0: 1999, this, uh, real estate man uh-huh. in Dallas, Texas named Tom Rhodes got Tom tomroads.net, Tom tomroads.tv. Tom Everything. Everything. I did not have my first computer until the year two thousand. So um <clears throat> I for the first few years I had a website, it was TommyRodes.com. <laughs> yeah. But I only let people who are really close to me call me Tommy. Yeah. There's only maybe ten people. And so people would write me and say Tommy, and I didn't like that. So I wrote to TomRhodes.com in Dallas, Texas, and I I sent him an email and I said, first of all, this was many years, this is like, God, I don't know, this is a long time ago. Um, Maybe 20 years ago, 19 years ago. I said, first of all, let me compliment you on what a lovely name I think you have. And and I explained to him that my name is really important to me and uh, uh, I didn't want to be Tommy uh, on the thing. And the man is so kind and generous He's such a wonderful person, and why wouldn't he be? His name is Tom Rhodes. He gave me TomRhodes.net.
1: Oh, that's nice. And he
0: said, the only thing I ask is uh, free tickets for life whenever you play in Dallas. Nice. And uh, I, he's come to see me a couple times, and you know, he's older, uh, but wonderful man, great laugher, very kind wife, and uh, that's the reason I'm TomRhodes.net. And so uh, now you got another I'm, great story. From I'm, him. And I'm I'm happy to be Tom Rhodes <laughs> well man thank you so much for stopping Please, by call me tommy
1: oh tommy thank you for stopping by but not uh i'm sure you're touring for the rest of the year as well or are you leaving the country
0: i things are starting to open up no are i'm you- not going to travel internationally until next year okay uh i'm doing a comedy festival in austin texas on moon uh moon. no no oh, it's not no okay on the altercation comedy festival on okay. october 29th uh for the first time i'm gonna perform in my hometown of Oviedo, florida uh, on November thirteenth at the Oviedo Amphitheater and Cultural Center. Very nice. And um, other than that, I'm just going to stay in. Oh, in San Francisco, I'm there uh, the ninth through the twelfth, I think, of, se- of September. But other than that, I'm I'm just going to focus on um, on L.A. and nice California. What what what
1: place in San Francisco?
0: It's called Cheaper Than Therapy. Cheaper Than on Therapy. Sutter Street.
1: Nice, nice, great room tom tommy thank you so much for stopping by tom i really appreciate it man thank you so uh much.
0: you're you're a, you're a bright golden light in the business michael we and, all need to be yeah and and like i said my girlfriend and i have been driving around listening to pop <laughs> pop 2k and Early like 2000s man. and i'm like for like the last uh two weeks tom thank you so much long may you run michael it's, long may uh, you run uh, too, and I'm, I'm gonna be listening to you all summer all right and um I, I, I'd love to hear a little shout out in a couple of
1: weeks. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I will text you. I will, I will give you a shout out when, uh, see, it's hard to do shout outs. Cause you're never in your car when, unless you I'm in go. the
0: car a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Vegas for two weeks and then I'm driving up to Montana. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. For so I'm gonna get your,
1: I'm a you get your phone number. And then in two weeks, I'm gonna hit you up and go, yo, at this time, exactly. Tom Rhodes is going to get a shout out on pop 2k.
0: I want to announce first of all that there'll never be another, Evan Evan, another Evan. Evanescence and another Evanescence song played on this network and as a replacement for that I'm going to take Tom Rhodes's suggestion and play Frank Ocean. There you go. That would be nice. This Frank Ocean song's for you, Tom. Yeah. Wherever you are out there in Montana. Is that
1: early 2000s though? Or is that 2010 and oh, above? Oh. See, oh, Frank, it, it had to be like two, or is it in the 90s? It's got to be in that window. It has to be because we're 10 years behind. So Early 2000s means like if we get to 2040, then we'll play to 2020. Like, Uh, yeah. So, right now we're at like 2010. So, okay, then I'll never hear Frank Ocean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, Tom, but I'll play some Britney Spears for you
0: (laughs) or Insta. Hey, man. Free Britney. Free.
1: (laughs) That's a whole other
0: story. We'll talk about that next. Oh, my God. I did it again. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. You're welcome, though.